The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Dr. Sean Edmonds, and he is an OB here in Utah, and I am so excited that you're here, Dr. Edmonds. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been exciting. <laughs> well, so I've got a lot of questions. We're going to go hardcore today. Let's do it. Get Let's all get the as answers. as we can and get answers out there. Yeah, but first of all, give us a quick background. Why did you decide to go into this crazy world of pregnancy and birth? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I entered med school thinking I'd be a surgeon of some kind and, you know, reconstructive or trauma or all these exciting things. But ultimately, um, when I had my first opportunity to see, well, the first birth I saw was my own first child, but mm. first then when I participated in just like lit me up and I, you know, I'd stayed late on my med school rotation and came home and it just, it was clear to me right away. Like, this is what I'm going to do. So right there, everything shifted gears and I learned more that I could have this birth experience side that's just amazing and I knew what I was supposed to do. But on the same point, I am a full-fledged gynecologist as well and mm -hmm. do hysterectomies and help women with the the surgical side of, of women's health as, as they get older and that as well. So it's just, it's a fun field for someone with ADD to bounce back and forth and do OB and GYN and <laughs> oh, do it all. Oh, that explains uh, so much. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, those first few minutes after a birth, mm -hmm. um, or just, you know, you never get unreal. tired of it, do you? Exactly. No, you don't. How I was, many babies do you think you've delivered? So I just looked at this this week, not anticipating that question, yeah. but um, probably around 1,500 now. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I've just been in practice about four years and then plus some time in residency, of course. So, so. how many, um, uh, this was a question that, that came up in the community. How many natural births or unmedicated births did you see versus medical births in in residency? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I would say because I'm a hospital-based practice, there's more uh, mm -hmm. medicated than unmedicated. I, I don't have a number for you. Um, in my experience through hospitals as in residency and in practice, it's, it seems pretty similar in most places that yeah. majority of women in the hospital setting use an epidural. Um, but I'd probably say in my own personal practice now, maybe it's you know, 80, 85% of women do use an epidural, but mm -hmm. I have a lot of women also seek me out because they want a natural birth because they know I'm super supportive of that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I do both. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely heavy on the epidural yeah. setting. And that's understandable. I was just wondering because when I gave birth without medication, there were some students in the room that had never seen a natural birth. And I was a little confused how you could be residents and never have seen oh, no, uh, you, an no, unmedicated you birth. See, you see plenty. Like my, <laughs> my wife, all three of our children, she um, went unmedicated, unmedicated. and I and, uh, have a lot of patients. You know, that number is probably not accurate. It's probably a little heavier towards unmedicated just because yeah. in the hospital, it's probably that, that percentage is right. But my own personal practice is probably a little heavier toward unmedicated. Yeah. Um, good. You do because, have a reputation here for being very friendly to that. So. Well, good. Um, and my goal <laughs> is just to be friendly to a supportive, good experience. And, and, and whether you want medication or epidural or not is a personal choice, not yeah. a medical necessity. Uh, 99% of the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So I've got a ton of questions. We decided before we started recording that we would just kind of rapid fire through the questions and that Dr. Edwins would come back for a future episode. I to, I'd to, love to. to I, I enjoy deep. this. I, lo- I enjoy teaching. And some enjoy of this stuff this. is yeah. really heavy. Some of this stuff is really, there's a lot to know about it. So I'm excited to dive deeply later. Right. Okay. So what kind of um, training did you get on breach delivery and how do you feel about breach delivery? Training on breach delivery is super limited now, Yeah. You know, to be honest. Um, it's not really taught so much um, as a, for a singleton pregnancy anymore, although I've seen it and participated in it. It is really limited, and that's just because the studies, uh, the, well, the one major study came out that said C-section is going to be safer than a singleton breach delivery, even though the study wasn't that great. Um, mm. Kind of changed the just course of the, medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and so, but that said, um, I've delivered a lot of babies breach when they're twins. So uh, it's very common that if we have a twin uh, vaginal birth, and I, and I take care of a lot of women with twins, and and unfortunately a lot of people think, oh, you have to have a C-section, and a lot of women are steered that way. Right, but for sure. Vaginal birth, is um, our goal is as long as baby A, the first baby, is head down, delivered normally, uh, baby B can come out breach much easier. Yeah. The, the risk of breach of this fear is that the head is the part that's going to not flex, uh, you know, it's going to extend and not flex and get trapped in the cervix mm-hmm. or the birth canal. And that's where you run into risk. And, um, and that's where it kind of went away, but we still do. So I'm trained in breech delivery. Uh, the vast majority of breech delivery I've done is with the twin, the you twins. Know, delivering mm-hmm. the twin second, mm-hmm. the second twin breech. But yeah, there's a lot of fear about doing the first one. And that's just because there's some data that suggested a C-section is safer. So yeah. So when do you make the decision to deliver twins via C-section? So, um, sometimes there's a medical indication because of growth restriction or problem or fetal distress, but, but if it is just, you know, everything's going as expected and we're just moving toward a labor or term, um, the kind of guidelines given are as long as baby A is vertex or head down, Mm -hmm. um, that baby's just delivered like any single baby would be. Uh, baby B, the goal is that baby B is less than 20% bigger than a so if B, so is that what usually happens is bigger twin turns down first no that's not what i'm saying what oh. i mean is um it, either one can be the bigger one but if a delivers and b happens to be transverse you know sideways or breach so we're going to have to grab the feet and deliver the baby breach and that baby is larger than 20 percent bigger than a there's an increased risk of head entrapment. Yeah. Literally baby B delivers to the level of the head and the head gets trapped in the cervix or, or vagina. And that's where the risk comes with singleton breach delivery as mm-hmm. well. So um, we try to look and see that we, we hope that baby B is less than 20% bigger. So B either needs to be smaller, similar size, or hopefully not bigger than 20% bigger, which is usually the case. It's not mm-hmm. common um, in my experience that the second twin is bigger than 20% bigger than the first one. Yeah. So, but that's one of the guidelines we look for and the the risk being head entrapment. Yeah. And if they are that much different in size, then you've got a, um, you have to have a, a serious fetal, discussion about, yeah. well, if this baby got stuck and, yeah. and so you have a discussion about what's safer, a, a planned cesarean versus a uh, vaginal birth. But in my experience, almost always with baby a head down, you can really, um, mm-hmm. almost always have a vaginal birth. Cool. With okay. the right provider. And, with the right, yeah. and people need to the know, provider. like, do you do, 
vaginal twins because they're and you're going to find providers that don't and, and if do that's re- the case and you don't and you want a vaginal birth you should be seeking another, early on yeah. someone like myself that does it do you deliver in the or then or do you deliver in the regular rooms we deliver uh by practice most hospitals deliver twins in the or due because of the higher risk for emergent c-section right um so my experience, because that's usually a hospital policy, mm-hmm. um, for uh, and so and having an anesthesiologist on hand just in case of emergency, uh, we try to then make it as much a normal experience as well. You can't help the ORs are all white walled, yeah. And cold. So and we cold. try to make them where they're not so cold because you can adjust the temperature. Yeah, we try to make sure family's still there. Um, and supported and dad's cutting the cord. And the, we, I try to make it all the same as if it's our normal you labor You can room. let other people into the OR? For sure. Especially if it's, if it's a vaginal birth in the yeah. OR. The reason there's restrictions with C-section, it's a, an infection risk thing. The more extra bodies in the OR, you increase infection risk and things like that. Got but it. with a planned vaginal birth, um, we can bring other people back. And so it's yeah. the same experience, you know, at the hospital I'm at, the, and most hospitals, the rooms, the delivery rooms are designed to feel like home, like right. warm colors, all that to at least help. Thank this. you to the 90s. If, yes. you're not, <laughs> if you're not in uh, your own home, that this is going to try to feel as comfortable as possible. And so the OR can't do that because it's white and you know different. But we try to do all the same things. So yeah. It's the same experience. Very cool. And in my experience, most of my patients have a really good experience with that. Yeah. Well, I, and also, I mean, yeah, whether it's what room it's in, the provider is going to set kind of the tone of how things go. That is like the biggest thing. So when people mm-hmm. are looking and they say, well, that hospital or this or that, poly-, you know, really what you, the most important thing is your provider. Your provider sets the tone. Okay. Oh, that leads me into another question. Thank you for the segue. Is what, um, how can, it, what happens if you believe that something, the, hol- the hospital's policy is is kind of not in alignment with what you feel so a patient needs? In my experience, the hospital's policies um, almost always match studied well-known policies of ACOG or other, you know, governing mm-hmm. bodies. Um, if you're at a place where the policies aren't matching, then that's something that you, you want a provider that's proactive about changing. Um, you know, there was, when I started where I was at now, there was some uh, vagueness about mm-hmm. the back after two C-sections. It wasn't restricting it, but the wording was vague. And so people mm-hmm. were making assumptions and so I went out of my way to say like, okay, like here's what it said and, and said it. So, but it was a matter of me setting the tone and that changed. Yeah. And I've also heard of uh, women saying, oh, my doctor said I could do this. I could do that. And then they get to the birth and the doctor comes in and says, actually it's against hospital policy. Did the doctor just kind of, I mean, what was that all about? No, that's hard. I don't think it's ever intentionally done. And you know, that, uh, the doctor's trying to be supportive in preparation, but maybe at, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I would doubt the yeah. doctor's trying to say, <laughs> I, I would let you, but let's throw the hospital under the bus yeah. and go in the hospital. <laughs> it might've just been a, a misunderstanding or something like that. But um, hopefully that's something that is a rarity that that's occurring. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I, I have had times where I'm like, oh, we have a wireless monitor and you can go on the wireless monitor for babies so you can walk mm-hmm. the hall. That's a great but example. when my patient gets there, um, they're all in use. And so... It's so, not that I don't want them to have the wireless monitor, but if, yeah. if, but if all the sets are currently in use by other patients, um, it wasn't uh, me trying to lead them astray, but mm-hmm. I was telling them the truth that it was there. But sometimes sometimes things are out of your control. That's yeah. not really a policy thing, but that, no, I've had like, yeah. that happen where I said, yeah, I've you can go on wireless and you can go mm-hmm. walking. 
And then we or get I can labor there. in the tub, but then it comes that the nurse, you know, attending the mom is like, no, she's not I, comfortable I with that. I think that comes so she... up more often than it should. And that is a comfort level thing. And that, mm-hmm. that's a cultural change that's slowly occurring. Yeah. That, yeah. that That's more, but, but I've seen that example. As well, well, I actually witnessed, it was the most amazing thing. Cause I was like, is anybody else in the room seeing this craziness that I see? But the, the provider and the nurse were at a standstill over a policy yeah. and, and uh, the provider's like, no, I'm going to go ahead and deliver this baby while the mom's standing up. And the nurse was like freaking out. She's like, well, don't you want to get back on the bed? Don't you want to get? <laughs> yeah. And that's a comfort level. There's probably actually yeah. not a policy on that as much no, as not a, comfort a comfort level. Comfort level. Um, so, and, so that's uh, a good question. Is this your comfort level issue or is this a hospital policy issue? With, uh, you know, those kind anything. of things. Yeah, yeah. I think that probably comes up. Most policies I've seen in hospitals, if ACOG comes out with new guidelines or changes or this is safe or yeah. this isn't, um, I feel like, um, almost unanimously, everyone is trying to follow the correct guidelines. So does it bug you when your patients ask you questions? Oh, no. I actually encourage <laughs> that was it. Yeah. I mean, I'm no, saying so, uh, many, so no. many people are upset with their experience because they felt like there was a misunderstanding or that they were treated, you know, there was a bait and switch type of thing. Right. But so, I'm saying, what did you ask your provider yeah, to explain? Yeah, and unfortunately, I think that's true. I, I hope I said it tone, and I probably don't say it every time, but I, I'd like to think I try to. I tell people, ask questions, ask me anything you mm-hmm. want. And I won't do anything without explaining why I'm doing it. Um, you know, as, especially as we get in that third trimester and all those real questions start coming about yeah. birth and episiotomy and this and that and that and, and and reassuring them that like, okay, we don't intervene unless there's a really good reason. Mm-hmm. At least I can speak for myself on that. Um, but I always tell them like, I'm never going to do anything without telling you why. Yeah. Um, and And the biggest thing, so like I said, Provider sets the tone, but the other big thing about care is you and your provider need to have a trust between each other um, if you want a good experience. And that trust is sometimes hard to build in a culture that glorifies the doctor. Like basically don't question the doctor. Don't, you know, don't, with with you, you encourage questions so you can have a relationship. I think that comes down to personality too, because I do know your older school or older doctor Mm -hmm. who is more likely to be like, I am the doctor, call me doctor mm-hmm. so-and-so. Um, and and I think it's probably more true in a younger culture. I'm yeah. officially like right at the I know, I was going to say. I think I'm officially <laughs> Things millennial. are shifting. But, because uh, <laughs> but if a patient comes in and calls me doctor or Sean or Edmonds or whatever they want to call me, I'm uh, whatever they're comfortable with, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with. And if they have questions, I want them to ask. yeah. And, and I do have, you know, we have those discussions sometimes where they say, okay, here's my birth plan. Can we look at it together? And I always look at every bullet, every bullet point they make. And so that we have a discussion in advance, for example, if someone says, I don't want an IV at all, um, usually what they don't want is IV fluids running or anything like that. But I'll say, okay, that is totally your choice. If in the setting of heavy vaginal bleeding or hemorrhage, you needed an IV, do you want an IV that's already in place or do you want to, you know, cause it's not that common that that would happen. And I let them right. know that. Mm-hmm. Um, or would you rather have it in place with no fluids running so they could just hook it up if we had to use it in an emergency? Or are you okay with the fact that if you started to bleed heavy, a nurse would be needing to try to start an IV, which could add to your stress. Which is also and a great a segue choice. into the discussion of informed consent. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So informed consent. So the the woman decides she does not want a Heplock, which is, you know, or does not want an IV. Uh-huh. And then you explain to her the, the scenario, uh-huh. like all, so she can then make a, 
make an informed choice. That's what informed consent is, mm-hmm. yeah. And so that's what it should be. I had a great mentor in um, in residency that's well-known around here, um, and, and I get compared to a lot uh, with my with my support of supporting people, you know, mm-hmm. and it's because he's taught me like you you can educate people on why and what, and then it's still an informed consent is still a person's choice. Yeah, it gets sticky in ethical situations. That, that if was choice, my next question. <laughs> if the choice is being made that's causing direct harm exactly. to that person, and and that's why I say trust is so important because if I feel like I've got a good trust with my patients and they let's say. I don't want an IV. And we just have the educated, like, okay, if you have bleeding, here's why we would want it, even mm-hmm. if we weren't using it before. Um, and if we didn't have it, here's what they'd have to do. And, you know, why maybe trying to get one placed as you're actively bleeding is more stressful for everybody, including them. Um, but then it's their choice. Yep. And that's that's informed consent. So that's that. But if, um, for example, there's, there's signs or symptoms that the baby is significantly distressed and I'm worried about higher risk of cerebral palsy because of lack of oxygen. And that person is disagreeing and saying, no, mm-hmm. that's where it gets hard because yeah. informed consent is not just infe- affecting them, but it's affecting someone who can't make a choice. And that's exactly. probably a whole, like another three hour podcast. I know but, we should, yeah, we should but, do an uh, entire hour. But, informed uh, consent. So informed consent, but I think those kind of sticky situations get avoided when trust is there in the first place. Mm-hmm. That if I, and I tell people- You like, do realize that you live kind of in your own bubble because you are a, a, a provider that really seeks to have mom have informed consent and informed refusal. But for those with providers that don't, I mean, yeah. here's the other thing is not everybody can pick a provider like you because of where they live. There may not, not be a Dr. Edmonds there. And so right. and how I, can they? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I know locally how people can do it is we actually have <laughs> telemedicine at my facility now. Wait, what's that? So we have now where if someone's um, wanting to travel to come see me where I'm at, um, but the drive is further, but they want that care and they've been referred and they want the experience. Um only about half or less of OB visits actually have to be in person because we're either right. doing ultrasound or blood work. Yeah. A lot of them, um, a patient can weigh themselves, listen to their baby's heart rate, um, and check their own blood pressure. Oh my gosh, I love that. And, and then what we do <laughs> is um, talk. Most of what I, you know, I would see half or more visits. The only thing I'm doing is talking. The rest can be done by, yeah, the nurse checking them in or themselves at home with the right equipment. Yeah. So we actually have a program now. We just started this. I've done it with one patient who lived two and a half hours away, but wanted to be back and wasn't feeling supported where they were. Um, yeah. Half, you know. So you did all the prenatal care. So about half of the visits are in person, half of them are over the phone. So if you're saying, oh, if that's an hour drive to see the provider I want. And in this case, it's two I'm and talking hour, about myself. Wow. Um, <laughs> that they can basically purchase this relatively affordable kit that, you know, most people oh, that's that they're really driving neat. for, it's made up before in the gas money and their time yeah. really fast. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you're right. That's not everywhere. And we know we have listeners yeah. from all over the yeah. nation and even internationally, but um, that hopefully will become more of a common thing. And we're providing seen, that for our patients. Yeah. And, and there's a trust level um, for, sure. for sure. That's, that's the best scenarios. If it's just a matter of trust and the mm-hmm. doctor really is wanting the best for the patient, the patient is in right. distress, whatever. But then on the other end of the spectrum is a doctor who is really strong arming something that's unsafe or un- and that's hard. And that's where I can speak on a personal level. That, yeah. And that is, uh, you're right. I don't think about those as much because I'm thinking about my, you know, yeah. how do I interact with my patients? So how would you advise but, women? But to- if, if a woman is feeling in, in, 
and this may backfire where someone maybe doesn't feel like I'm the right fit for them too, right? Mm-hmm. But if a woman feels like they're not in the right fit and not having a trusting relationship and not in the right spot, it is their right to to look elsewhere too. You know, yeah. I think people are afraid to um, um, switch because of worry about offending or things like that. And I'll be honest, as an OB that goes above and beyond to like give my whole self to my patients, if someone switches away from me, you I'm get always a little like, offended. Mm, you know, what did I do <laughs> Lick wrong? your wounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I also understand like, hey, I must have not been the right fit. Yeah. That's okay. So I have to be mature enough to say that's okay. Yeah. So I don't go chase those people down or call them and why aren't you coming back to me? Um, because I, I feel like they should be supported. And I have people come to me that said, Hey, my doctor just wasn't listening and I need to listen to someone else. And I try to not, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what happened in those situations. So I just say, okay, if you feel supported here, let's talk. Yeah. Um, and so if you're not feeling you're in a trusting relationship where that's happening, it is okay to seek one. I actually um, tried to switch providers during one of my pregnancies at about 38 weeks. And I went to a doctor much like yourself who just Mm -hmm. listened to my woes and said, well, I'd be happy to take you on, but you know, just so you know, this and this and this, you can, you can ask for this and this and this. I actually ended up going back to the original provider because at 38 weeks I was, you know, a frazzled mess and I had, I think a better experience. Empowered opportunity to say, I'm going to at least check something out. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like my discussion with him um, helped me go back to the other provider and just say, no, really, these are this is what mm-hmm. I'd like to see. And I think it, it helped. And I've had that too. I've had a patient, mm-hmm. you know, or more than once they've come to me and just said, well, here are my questions. And I say, well, here's what I would do and, and why. And I feel like once I explain the why, then suddenly they're comfortable being wherever because they understand it. And so sometimes they stay and sometimes they, because they drove, you know, they had driven yeah. an hour to see me to do that. They're like, well, I guess I can do that at my home. Which brings yeah. me to, you are great at the segues. <laughs> the next question is, is um, when somebody gets upset about yeah. something, um, whether it's a policy or procedure or whatever, and, and they get upset because of information that they misunderstood. Yeah. And instead of asking the provider to explain why why they made that choice. They just get mad. Yeah. I think most of the time when people are upset, it's a misunderstanding and that goes two ways. You know, I, but you are positive. Providers are allowed (laughs) to get upset too. And sometimes we get upset too, but I, you know, usually it's, uh, from my stand, from my side or the provider side, we have to step back and be like, okay, where is this coming from? But you could even ask, you know, the, yeah. we're saying, mom, ask the provider, ask the provider. But you're actually, the provider could even ask the mom, why do you not want right. to have block? Well, I would, had cancer as a kid and my arm is, you know, butchered and I just, I have this thing about IVs. Yeah, and it would make oh. total sense, right? <laughs> Which then you'd say, well, maybe that's more of a reason to have one non-emergently or, you know, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, but, but then you but can have, then that you trust. Can have an educated. Mm-hmm. Dis- and so from people my always standpoint, have their reasons. Yeah, from the patient standpoint, yeah, if you're upset um, that's where, once again, it goes back to this trust. Hopefully you're in a relationship where you're okay. That upset yeah. you, but you can say, okay, why did we do that? And I think as adults, we just have to, um, in an era where everyone types stuff up real quick and is really aggressive and, uh, that never gets us anywhere. So I like to say, yeah. okay, if we're on a misunderstanding, let's like both step back and say why rather than get aggressive. Cause whenever there's antagonism, even when both parties are trying to find the right answer, mm-hmm. there's always a little conflict that doesn't make it work as well. So I'm okay. And sometimes with, you can agree to disagree. For sure. Just, you know. Yeah. Like um, from a strictly medical standpoint, would I prefer everyone have an IV at least in place? Yes. But that's because I've seen the 5% of time where a hemorrhage is so heavy that it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, 
but that's okay to be like, if they really don't want one and they understand the pros and cons, mm-hmm. uh, that's okay. Um, you know, we keep using that example, but it's a good so one. So what's informed up. refusal? I, I remember, I can't remember what paper I signed in the hospital, but apparently I was doing something really bad. I don't remember what it was. They made me sign a paper saying that I acknowledged I was probably killing my child. Yeah. And I guess that would be legally informed refusal, but I didn't, I mean. So informed consent and informed <laughs> refusal are should be really the same thing, right? It's the yeah. same discussion and you're either consenting or you're not. And there are certain things where probably lawyers have gotten their hands on them and said, if the person says no to that, you have to make them sign it. I don't think that happens too often. Uh, but I, I just, think it uh, happens but, uh, more than I've, we think it does, honestly. Yeah, probably. You're right. Well, and as a provider, I, <laughs> I never, mean, for I, you, I hardly again. ever see what people are <laughs> yeah. signing. Yeah. But yeah, there's always a stack of papers, unless it's yeah. a, a I th- surgical I I did. procedure where I do the consent for them directly and they say, yeah. Uh, um, like for a hysterectomy. Oh, oh, I remember it was, I had to sign several papers. I remember one, I had to sign, um, to not give the heppy shot. Oh, right. And that was just, I mean, you're like, well, you do realize the, that your baby's eyes are complicated. can, yeah. Luckily as an OB, once the baby's delivered, the pediatrician's got to figure that part out. <laughs> you have it, you have it easy. No, just kidding. No, um, but no, that's, that's another example of that is, yeah. And then, form. so if you really, really feel strongly about something and a woman is really, really strongly against it. Then will you ever to a point say, you know, maybe we're not a good fit? So I think that can happen. And I think it happens. uh, And that's a personality and trust thing that probably happens more often depending on provider preference and um, how firm they want to be. It doesn't happen that often with me because I I really do believe if people are educated and really educated on why they're saying or doing something, then that should be okay. Um, so it doesn't, I don't have it very often where I've parted ways with, I, I, yeah. I can't think of any examples where I've parted ways with someone. Um, and that's usually, I am a firm believer in like step back, figure out and talk, figure it out. I don't, even in, you can ask my wife in my own relationship, if we conflict on <laughs> oh, something. Oh, bring in the wife. <laughs> I uh, like, I can't, I'm not comfortable until we like are good again. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. and that's true with my patients. I probably get way too personal and, and, and making sure we're at a good spot that if yeah. I feel like there's a conflict, I want to know why and educate. And this comes up with like, well, I don't want Pitocin. And mm-hmm. I said, well, do you know what Pitocin is? And you'd be, a lot of people don't actually know. They don't even is. know. They just heard it was a bit bad yeah. word. Um, and I don't want this. And well, do you know why we do that? And, and so for mm-hmm. most people, education allows good decision-making. Exactly. And I'd say more often than not, we end up at the same place. And that's not me educating in a way that influence, but I really try to say, okay, here's why. Mm-hmm. And um, most of the time it's at the, I would say the majority of the time conflict goes yeah. away with education. I tell people that um, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not going to go march on Capitol Hill. It's not my style. I don't work at the hospital administration level. I feel like working with the moms and teaching them what their choices are and what their rights are. Right. And then they take them to the doctor and through adult conversations, right. like you said, have covered, that's how we change maternity For sure. care in the U.S. I mean, and I'm grateful to, be... to the lobbies, the people that work at the top of the, the uh, hospitals, those are very valuable, but there's also, we're down here. Grassroots. Grassroots. Yeah. Grassroots, yeah. <laughs> so no, and I think, but yeah, I'm a firm believer in education solves most conflict um, or at least, and that's true from maybe the patient saying, okay, I understand why you want to do that. Let's do it. And it's also true of the provider saying, okay, I understand where you're coming from and why we're going to not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and amazing. so education yeah. on, and uh, yeah, communication is huge. 
Okay, so I've got a bunch of funny little questions. They're okay. not funny, but are they are kind of like random. Local coming questions? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So I pulled the community and for some hard questions. So we're going to hear it all. Um, so is pre? Can you reverse preeclampsia with good nutrition? So we're saying a situation where someone has confirmed high blood pressure, mm-hmm. protein in their urine, lab abnormalities. Can they change their diet and fix it? I don't think reliably that that can not be reliably. On. Yeah, yeah. If someone is borderline uh, with high blood pressures or a history of chronic hypertension, which you know, meaning you have high blood pressure before pregnancy mm-hmm. and you are higher risk for preeclampsia, I think there's definitely things you can be doing to limit or for sure. But but if you are 38 weeks and your blood pressure is 155 over 100 and there's protein in your urine and there's worry, are you going to be able to go home and change your diet? No. No, yeah. Uh, well, if you're so, on the flip side, if you're a gestational diabetic and you're diagnosed with high sugars, could you go different. home and change your diet and do things and control it without medication? Uh, yes, that's totally possible. So eclampsia is caused by, I mean, because so, some women will have it in one pregnancy and not in others. Right. So I heard sh- it's caused by the placenta. You heard right. And that's about, you know, so it's not as understood as well as it, we, any of us hope, you know, if you really pin us, pin down the researchers, there's theories. There's, <laughs> Duct tape them we, to the we, wall. We know what that, causes yes, it. <laughs> it's related to the placenta, but a lot of the details are still forthcoming and, and there's more emerging evidence, but yeah. we do know that the cure is delivery and it's not delivery of the baby, it's the placenta. Um, and we know it's a placental, uh, related to placental disease. And so, yeah, and the, the cure in the severe cases um, is delivery. Mm. And so depending on someone's gestational age, we're making serious making decisions. serious decisions. Right, do you have preeclampsia? Do you have preeclampsia with severe features, which used to be called mild and severe preeclampsia, but the new terminology is what I, mm. you know, preeclampsia versus preeclampsia with severe features. Do you have HELP syndrome? Do you have eclampsia? Okay, which, wait, sorry. Go through the spectrum. So the, yeah. the, the. The not, it's just high blood pressure. We so, start there. So yeah, you may have high blood pressure. And, and in pregnancy, to- we'll call it chronic hypertension, implying okay. that it was there prior to pregnancy. Got it. Prior to 20 weeks. And With you've preeclampsia, got- you're going to see after 20 weeks. Oh, got so it. So someone has high blood pressure thing. before 20 okay. weeks. Does that put you more at risk? You have high blood pressure okay. and you have a higher risk. And right, you can and then- take a baby aspirin every day to lower your risk. That's important to know too. If you have high blood pressure or history of preeclampsia and you take a baby aspirin every day through the pregnancy... You will lower your risk of unless you have a blood clotting disorder. Oh, um, no, unrelated. Unrelated. Yeah, yeah. Now you, uh, so yeah, now I'm hearing all sorts of things. Okay, yeah. so then you've got a preeclampsia. So, so if you look at there is gestational hypertension, meaning you developed high blood pressure after 20 weeks, but there's no protein in the urine or other lab oh, abnormalities, um, and that's kind of the start of the spectrum. Although you can have one and never get to the other, um, but then you have you have preeclampsia, uh, preeclampsia with severe features. Help syndrome and eclampsia. Um, they're not always like progressing in that order, but mm-hmm. that's kind of things on this spectrum. And eclampsia is where you have seizure. massive seizures. You, know, you have preeclampsia, that is pre-eclampsia. Uh, so you have the high blood pressure, the lab abnormalities, but you have actually now had a seizure from it. Fantastic. Yeah. That's why when your doctor says you have preeclampsia in your 38 weeks, I want to induce you, even though you spent your whole pregnancy saying, I don't want to induce, your doctor is trying to avoid eclampsia. Yeah. Cause that's really scary. Not always just trying to like get you delivered before a weekend. Like, or, you know, it, it's, there's usually a good reason. And and once again, I'm speaking for myself, yeah. you know, we're induced unless someone actually has a, mm-hmm. a good reason or an elective choice after 39 weeks. Yeah. 
And then one of the one of the things is um, you have protein in your urine because just high blood yes. pressure, being stressed, is not going to so put high protein blood in your alone, urine, right? As long as it's not a severe, you know, higher than one sixty over one ten or one hundred five, some people use. Um, but no protein in the urine is gestational hypertension, or if you had it the whole pregnancy, chronic hypertension. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so um, third stage of labor. Um, how do you feel about? Um, pulling on the cord or oh, yeah. so not you're asking using... about act, what we call active management. Yeah, active of, the, of, of after of, the baby's so out. What... It's active management uh, of the placenta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the reason for active management, which means you know massage and crudet on the uterus and, so and gentle traction on the cord, um, which should be gentle. You shouldn't be super aggressive. You're more likely to avulse the cord. Yeah, for sure. And it's stuck, and then you're doing a procedure, or you're reaching in to get it. And that's oh my goodness. Uh, if you think crudet is miserable, uh, any of that is. So it should be a gentle traction, really, just to see is the placenta releasing. We're not mm-hmm. trying to yank it off, but. They've shown that active management by um, you know fundal massage, gentle traction on the cord. Um, the World Health Health Organization argues start pitocin after delivery of the baby to help expulse the. And that's the like just what people recommend is to start that's, pitocin. And the, the whole point of all that is to decrease postpartum hemorrhage risk, mm-hmm. and it has been associated with a lower rate of postpartum hemorrhage to to actively manage and try to deliver the placenta. Interesting. Yeah. You got to look at what the rate of postpartum hemorrhage is. Yeah. Uh, but but it has been shown to reduce reduce the level of postpartum hemorrhage is why people argue towards active management. So if everything now, is healthy, overactive management is going to cause yeah, a problem. That's you're going to cause a problem too. You're, yeah. you're pushing hard. You're yanking on it. You know. So you have to be uh, judicious and smart about what you're doing, just like anything. So when do you get worried? Like how long? How long do you want to see the? Placenta stay put. Cutoffs are always tough, but most placentas will deliver before thirty minutes. Before and you, so you're not super stressed. No, not super stressed unless there's bleeding. You know, bleeding uh, changes everything. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes you do see a placenta that's partially detached and we're bleeding heavy, but it's not coming out. That's where you would want to be more active, and and okay. that's just because you're trying to stop active bleeding, not mm-hmm. just the potential for ble- for bleeding. But, um, you know, it's considered normal to take up to 30 minutes afterward. And if there's but no bleeding say, and it's, and it's still staying put, then. Y- so if you're 30 minutes beyond and nothing's happening, you do have to consider there's a, a disorder of placental adherence or yeah. did that person have a DNC before or a C-section before or something that a placenta could be stuck. And so you're more likely to start to look at like a DNC to get the placenta removed. Got it. But it's a judgment. There's no, you have to make judgment in any mm-hmm. individual situation. So I can't tell you at 30 minutes, everyone's getting a DNC because that would be wrong. No, no, of course. But at 30 minutes, you're, if nothing's happening, you worry. And the other reason is just practically and clinically, the longer it's, you know, if someone's at 20, 25, 30 minutes, sometimes that blood that placenta is partially detached and there's big blood clots forming behind. And when it finally comes out, you see this gush, you know, a thousand liters of, yes. uh, not a thousand milliliters, one liter of, of uh, an entire ocean, yeah, yeah. the Red but, Sea. But you see like a liter of blood come out. And then you know, that's, that's that, that reassurance of like active management does make a difference, yeah. but it's, it's all being smart and judicious and, and not being over. Cause sometimes aggressive. you can't tell if there's bleeding behind the placenta until the placenta comes out. Right. Right. Are there other symptoms? More often you do see bleeding because yeah. it's kind of it's coming it out around it. But, <laughs> Got it. Um, but, but yeah, so it's active management, but smart management, you know, not being overly yeah. aggressive. All right. How about pushing with epidurals? Can you, yeah. do you, do you do guided pushing or, or um, yeah, guided pushing during so with an epidural? Or do epidural you... Because some people um, have 
a really dense epidural, meaning they can't feel anything and mm-hmm. they want it that way and they're hitting their button every 10 minutes, you know, um, to make it that way. I'll bring it on. Uh, without without some guidance, you might not know. <laughs> you might not know what push. planet and you're on. And a lot of like, okay, well, it should, it's not affecting you mentally. So you, I know, you know, I but, know. Um, you don't feel anything down there. It's an active um, block on the nerve, so you just numbness. But, um, but uh, what you, you know, see is people are frustrated like, okay, Am I pushing correctly? So yeah, you want to give feedback to say, hey, that's perfect. Yeah. And they say, well, I can't feel anything, but say, well, so you're pushing with, and progressing. And so, yeah, but we without active pushing, will a body just expel the baby? I mean, theoretically, given enough time, the baby's going to get lower and lower and lower. But I think, yeah, you know, unless if someone's not had a baby before, especially there's going to be some pushing involved. <laughs> yeah. We've all seen that mom who's had babies before and the baby just comes out. Uh, but, uh, so as long as, as long as baby's looking okay, can mom try? Cause the question actually, I think they're trying to get at if a mom wants to see if her body can just expel the baby, then can she turn down this coached pushing? Um, yeah, they could. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me to do that because <laughs> I mean, most women want to hold their babies. Yeah. Know? If they're saying, oh, I'm complete and the head's right there. And even with an epidural, a lot of women are feeling pressure. Yeah. So there's an urge to push. So it's not too common, even with epidurals, that someone doesn't want to push. Got it. Now, and then without an epidural, I think most, there's that natural urge to push with the pressure in the, so yeah. I don't think it's that often that someone doesn't want to push. So it's, it's kind of a, probably a very, very unique situation yeah. where that's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, how do you, <laughs> the MTHFR? Oh yeah. <laughs> have you, have yeah, you heard so of this MTHFR, thing going around? <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's not a new thing, although it sounds like you've I know, like I know you mentioned thing. this before recording, so spoiler alert, so, I, it's new to me. Yeah, so MTHFR. So in in the setting where women have had uh, stillbirth, uh, recurrent miscarriage, and pregnancy loss, mm-hmm. blood clots, there you know there's a whole panel of things you can test to see is someone higher risk because they are, um, you know, factor five carrier or a, a prothrombin gene mutation or anaphospholipid syndrome, but uh, MTHFR gets lumped in there too, mm-hmm. and I think generally most people feel like it doesn't really belong there. And then THFR, it, it has to do with how the body processes B12. Is that what it is? No, full, no, B, so no, it's not B12. So not B12. Uh, it is uh, something that's been associated with high risk for blood clot, but not really associated with pregnancy issues as much as it was once thought. So I think historically it was part of the panels that you tested and now it's not, you know, some of the leading, um, Leaders in the field for this are right here in Salt Lake City. Some maternal fetal medicine doctors, mm. uh, uh, Ware Branch, Bob Silver. Ware Branch wrote the book, wrote the New England Journal of Medicine paper on what to do for recurrent pregnancy loss. He's right here in Salt Lake City as well. But um, you know, I've talked to him about this, and he's usually told me that well, if someone already got tested, and then they get told you need to take extra folate. Yeah. You know, if you have this, you need to take extra folate. And so, yeah, you could say take some extra folate, but would he go out of his way to test someone that hadn't been tested already? No. So it's getting a lot of attention right now. And um, well, it gets a lot of attention because it's the cause of autism and it's the cause of car crashes right. and, and so it's a cause. I'm just kidding. I'm I mean, it's just specifically for, for recurrent yeah. pregnancy loss and stillbirth. Uh, you know, there may be emerging research that I'm not up to date on yet. And I'll totally for the other acknowledge aspects. that. But yeah. for as far as when I, what I see it for is people saying, oh, I had, a, you know, I've had three miscarriages or I've had a stillbirth. And the only finding was MTHFR. It's really hard to argue. Was that a factor or do you just happen to? Now, it's been a little minute since I 
looked at this, so I'm going to put a disclaimer on my percentage, but I believe it's a, it's a lot higher percentage than you think to have the MTHFR mutation mm-hmm. than, uh, than are actually having problems from the MTHFR. Right. And that's why you argue, well, if, you know, 30% of the population has this, but, it, but, the, but the issue being blamed for only happens on 1% of the population, is it really the MTHFR? Probably not. Probably not. So... Yeah, I know. There's so it's just one of so those when someone things. says that it, it's just kind of a little cringe. Like, well, okay, let's talk about it, but it probably isn't really what's causing yeah. your miscarriage or things like that. So you don't, yeah, okay, great. Um, so, so I don't routinely test it. Yeah. So how? Um, this is a funny question. I think. Um, can you check in any position? Well, how come doctors always seem to want the moms to go back on their back with their legs up to be checked? Can you check? It's just easier. Just, That's all. So it's all about you guys. So, uh, well, <laughs> it's uh, all about the doctors. Well, also, no, not, <laughs> and I'll say it's about more than that. Because if someone's standing or on hands and knees, and, and you're right, more often than not, we're checking with someone seated uh, in a reclined position or laying down. Uh-huh. Um, and it is much easier. Especially to, if they have an epidural. There's a couple of things. Well, yeah, because they're stuck in bed, right? Um, there's a couple of things. It is easier just because it's... What the comfort level, uh-huh. but it's also easier position wise to tell, okay, what way, not only are you dilated, but what way is the baby looking, how high and, and feeling anatomic landmarks to say, is the baby descending or not? So when someone's standing or sitting, I think it is harder. And usually those people are unmedicated. So your extra nerves like, okay, I don't want to actually, and this is very real, poke them right in the urethra as I'm trying to get to checking their cervix and things like that. So it's just, uh, it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder to feel the station oh, okay. and sometimes a little bit harder to get to feel. And would it, so it, it's not just convenient for us, but I think it's a little more I uncomfortable think, if we're searching around for too long. I'm just, just going to still throw you under the hospital bed. It's okay. just, <laughs> no, so, but I'll check people. I mean, so, but, but also I'll if check you check somebody, check <laughs> if you check somebody laying down the next time you check her kneeling, that would change like it would the shouldn't cervix, because it shouldn't. the cervix okay. should be dilated with the cervix right. is. That was my question. But it is, I, so I will check people anywhere is my disclaimer on that, but it is easier to yeah. check the way we're used to checking. Then that's true for that's anything, good. right? If you that. do it one way, then it's easier to do it your one yeah. way. But yeah. Okay. But if someone wants to be checked standing, then I say, okay, well let's, let's do it. Yeah. So how about using lidocaine on the perineum when baby's coming? Oh, yeah. We chatted about this before. Um, so the idea of lidocaine on the perineum, it's not going to stop a woman from feeling pressure or pushing it. The whole idea is that that, that quote-unquote ring of fire, that burning as your skin mm-hmm. stretching and burning, putting a little lidocaine on the perineum is hopefully helping with that. I'll be honest, I don't know how much it actually helps. Does but. it Does it um, prevent tear? No. No. Nothing can prevent. What prevents tearing? Oh, yeah. That's great. So that. um, stretching. You know, some women choose to do some stretching before. I think there's active... Uh, if you want to do some stretching with the pushing and that's easier said. Okay, that's another question. How about the providers that just have their hand in the, at the perineum all the time? So I'm against that just because I feel like actively pushing constantly and I'll see, you know, nurses do this too, because they're trying to help. But, um, and this is where I try to educate, um, if you're constantly doing pressure, 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 I feel like it leads to more edema and more edema means more fragility of the tissue. Yeah. Swelling. Leads to more fragility You're using the tissue. big words. And I think it <laughs> leads to worse tears. So if you look in and someone, every time they're pushing is like two fingers in there stretching and you'll see yeah. this sliding back and forth. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, I think yes. it leads to more swelling that leads to more of a tear. But, um, so I don't do that. If I'm going to try to help someone, um, then as the baby's crowning, usually we're kind of like uh, a finger or two on each side, kind of gently 
pushing down and out like toward four yeah. or eight o'clock. Um, but if you really want to limit tearing, here's things I feel like do work. Um, is yes, but as you're crowning and baby's pushing to let that slowly happen. If you're trying to, we've all seen it where someone's complete, their head, you know, you're seeing some of the head, um, that it's right there and everyone in the room is saying, push, 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 push. And then they're trying to power through and do it fast and accelerate that process. I think the tear will be worse. Yeah. So a controlled delivery meaning, yeah. and that's po- totally possible with epidural and without, mm-hmm. um, but in my <laughs> opinion, I had the fetal eject response. Oh my yeah, gosh. That's what I mean. Like push, push, push. But um, no, no. I mean, nobody, oh. I like, I felt like that baby shot out and I couldn't, it was like holding back a sneeze. Okay. So, oh my so gosh. That's, that's because there's two sides to a controlled delivery on the one. It's that pushing and like, rather than pushing the classic push for 10 seconds, push for 10 seconds. Right. As the baby's crowning, I'm almost always saying, we're going to push for five. We're going to push for three. <laughs> Our little grunty pushes grunty, is what mm-hmm. we'll call it. Those little ease out. So that's the mom's side. But on my side, I'm also got my fingers on a little tripod on the baby's head, just kind of slowly controlling it so that if there is a sudden big push, which may be totally natural for the mom to say just big urge is that I'm letting that head still come out slow. Really? So yeah. you're kind of putting some pressure on the baby's head to get Yeah. To, and it's not a lot so of pressure. Pop. It's just a I felt a pop and I was like, yeah. So what can happen, oh. and it makes us all cringe a little is the tissue is, has a elasticity point or a mm-hmm. stretching point that sometimes it is just going to pop and tear. No, mine was um, purely speed. I feel like yeah. if you'd been there holding the baby's head back, they, that, yeah. Easing. So even even with ease, sometimes we'll have that where Got it's it. like it just goes. But there, mm. you if you're gonna try to control it all, it's just. So I talk to my patients in advance. Hey, when we get to crowning, yeah, you've been pushing for someone's counting to ten, or you've been trying to just. And that's totally a preference. The counting thing, the whole counting thing is just we're trying to say if your contractions yeah, thirty seconds in. long maximize your pushing while you contract. So that becomes this like three episodes of ten seconds pushing. It doesn't matter if it's four episodes of seven seconds. It's just preference. And some people want us to count. Some people don't. And that's just, that doesn't matter. It's just maximize your push. But, but I do tell people as we're crowning, we're going to switch gears and I'm going to say, let's do little pushes, short pushes. We're going to ease the head out, ease the shoulder out. And the reason being is if we can do that, we can make your tear smaller. 100% of women say, Great, you know. Yeah, and, so, and you don't routinely do episiotomies. No, you only no, do a, and you shouldn't. There's yeah. good data to say yeah. that, um, that's, and that's that doesn't pretty, take like, a degree to say that if you, like, example, you cut a piece of paper and then put tension on that paper, it's going to tear more. But if there's no cut on a paper and you put tension, it probably won't. I'm a visual the person. I, You're killing idea, me right now. Is <laughs> this? If you have an episiotomy, which in rare situations we may be medically need necessary, it, right. mm-hmm. uh, a baby in distress or something like that. Um, then that is more likely to then extend. extend and yeah. and so the rate of third and fourth degree tears, meaning into the anal sphincter or, or right into the anus is higher. Yeah. So we don't routinely do them. But yeah, so back to controlled pushing is just uh, controlled pushing. And that's a discussion that happens before crowning. It's not like now that you're crowning, I'm going to tell you to slow down. This We're having that discussion before pushing even starts usually. Because you're a good provider. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> but, but uh, and when we're understanding both why, I feel like the degree of big tears is definitely cut down. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. How do your decisions, um, how are your decisions affected by liability and insurance? I would like to think they aren't, but so by, so let's, the easier part of that is insurance. 
that's a frustrating thing because, um, and that I see more in gynecology than obstetrics. But um, for example, someone comes to me with severe periods. They're missing work several days a, a month. They're, mm-hmm. And there's all these things. And I'll have a specific insurance provider that says, well, before you can do, and this is a 45-year-old woman who would benefit from a hysterectomy. Before you can do a hysterectomy, you need to put her on birth control pills for three months. And not a lot of 45-year-olds bleeding and missing work want to try three months of a birth control pill uh, or things like that. I'll have situations where insurance say, we won't approve a procedure that could be medically necessary Mm. until you try this. Um, And that's because they're trying to set guidelines generally. Now, there's a lot of women where trying some hormones or something first is going to be better and avoid a surgery. But sometimes there's someone that obviously needs a procedure and we're limited. So that might affect insurance. Or for example, someone who wants their tubes tied, but mm-hmm. has Medicaid, if they didn't sign a form 30 days in advance to say, I understand that this is permanent sterilization, I can't do it without Medicaid denying and charging them everything. So oh my most goodness. private insurances, you don't need prior authorization, but Medicaid, at least in Utah, I think this is a nationwide thing, um, requires a f- signed form 30 days in advance that says they understand it's permanent. Wow. And, and this so is during a C-section. Or right? after delivery, you know, a oh. postpartum tubal where you make a, you can make a tiny, tiny incision under the oh, belly okay. button and do it right at, um, in the, right after birth as well. Um, more commonly seen in C-section, but, but if someone's, yeah. So if I have a mm. mom who maybe had limited care, has Medicaid, shows up, it's their sixth kid and says, please tie my tubes. I can't get pregnant again, but they don't have that form. Oh We're limited. man. So that's, and that that's just unfortunate yeah. because women it's it's uh the point is to try to stop I think Medicaid's way of making sure people aren't making a permanent decision without it. It's a big deal. Yeah. But thirty days in advance is sometimes hard to to mm-hmm. um to get if someone's limited on care, especially if it's a financial reason they're limited I, I was on gonna care. say you're you're kinda of targeting a population that may now the other side what was the so you said oh, the, the liability the liability. Mm-hmm. You know, that's hard because unfortunately we live in an era where um you can't not think Okay, is this person more likely to sue me? And that and that's too bad because I so my opinion on that is actually pretty it seems like a tough question, but my opinion's simple. If I'm practicing good evidence based medicine and doing the right thing, then I'm gonna do the right thing. Yeah. And I can't ever control someone else's decision to maybe make something um into a legal issue. But if I've practiced doing the right thing and practicing good medicine, even if there were a lawsuit, um, I could say, well, here's why. And, and, and yeah. so, so, um, but unfortunately I know it happens that yeah. people will say, well, I won't do that. Or more often than what happens isn't that I'm not going to do something. It's that people are ordering extra tests. Or yeah. That's, extra yeah. Things. So you end up with more unnecessary care. tests, mm-hmm. more care, more bills because, um, someone's worried, well, if I didn't screen for that, and then they come after me for that, where I could say, well, hey, this person, I could look at the person and say, income-wise, do I need to do these three labs and this thing? Or can I just say, we know what's the right thing? But unfortunately, I think it happens where people say, well, legally, I should cover those things. Yeah. And so more often, I don't think it leads to people getting bad care. I think it leads to people getting too much care. Right. Extra labs, extra right. tests. Extra yeah. interventions. Exactly. Yeah. Because you never get in trouble uh, or you, you get you get in trouble if something goes wrong and you didn't do something. Right. But you don't get in trouble if you did something and something, right. something goes wrong. Right. Because unfortunately, 
um, risk exists in mm-hmm. childbirth and OBGYN care. Um, yeah, for example, your risk of a infection after a C-section is 9%. And so that means that's going to happen. But if you did everything right, you said that sometimes things happen and then we treat it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you're right, if you didn't do something and then something happens. Well, like, yeah, if the the baby, if the baby's in distress, something happens to the baby and you didn't do a C-section, you're in trouble. But if you did a C-section, they end up, the mom ends up with a total hysterectomy and major problems. You're not in trouble because at least you did the hysterectomy. Yeah. And And it's it's not too often someone's getting a hysterectomy at the time (gasps) of a C-section, but, uh, or rarely ever, but, but I see what or you mean. Or just complications like, but with if a you C-section. Say, well, I did that C-section because I was worried about distress for the baby. Mm-hmm. And then mom happened to get an infection afterward. Well, we still did the right thing. But if someone says, hey, this mom really wanted a vaginal birth. And maybe um, we didn't see that the baby was distressed because fetal tracings are not that great. Nope. I mean, you look at how they're graded. We're going to talk about that uh, in the next episode. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, sure. you're right. If you don't intervene soon enough, even though you're trying to do the right thing, yeah, you're more likely to get in trouble. And that's yeah. unfortunate. Okay, well, um, I am so sad that we only got through half of our rapid fire no, questions. We were going to talk about Alps and steroids and magnesium, we, all sorts of important things. We so didn't, next time. yeah, we didn't even get to dive deep. Which, anyway, not even half the questions. So, thank you. Maybe so, we'll have to do more than more than two then too. Yes, but. yes. Thank you so much for being so candid. Yeah. And for answering our questions. And <laughs> yeah. Really, Look me really up appreciate and it. Find me, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Dr. Sean Edmonds. How do they find you? So um, I'm at St. Mark's Hospital in, in Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, uh, and yeah, St. Mark's um, um, OBGYN.com. I'm right there and yep. um, I'm happy to see or talk to anybody. Oh, one really quick thing I'll slide in there is um, is you will take home birth transfers without yeah. freaking out. So there's that. You're right, but- without freaking out. And you know what? The, well, the hard thing with that and in defense of those who maybe freak out is. Unfortunately, the only home births we ever see are the bad ones, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. it's hard. But no, I made a decision a long time ago. If someone needs help, they need help. And it doesn't matter. But by not freaking out, the home births that you see are probably not at the freak out stage because people feel safer True, right? coming to you earlier. Like, rather than saying, yeah. I need to... I need to make this work and maybe pushing a little further, further than they than should me, safely yeah. do. They're more likely to say, okay, if yeah. I can, and I've had midwives in Utah Valley and Salt Lake Valley call and get an opinion. And I say, here's what I do. And sometimes that means they're headed to the hospital local to them, not to me. Yeah. But, but just yeah, get the I, opinion. You know, I, awesome. I, I believe we want moms and babies safe yeah. and that's the most important thing. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thanks for having me. That's fun. We'll do it again. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.